Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. I'm super chuffed about this week's guest on The Blank Canvas, Mark Fennessy. Mark is an entrepreneur, television and film producer, and he's been at the top of the mountain for over two decades. I've worked with Mark on a few occasions and he's become somewhat of a mentor and actually a mate. Had I known the full extent of his achievements, I probably would have been a little intimidated to do this interview. He's an absolute giant in the world of media and broadcasting in Australia. He started out in 1981 as an assistant cameraman in the news department of Network 7 in Melbourne, quickly rose through the ranks to become a highly respected producer with 7 and then 9. Dozens of major credits, including four Olympic Games broadcasts. At 26, he headed up MTV Australia, eventually joining the team at MTV International when it was an absolute global phenomenon. He returned to Australia to create Crackerjack with his brother Carl, as a little independent production company, they made a big name for themselves as producers of comedy and trailblazed the new world of unscripted television. Among the slate were Backburner, Comedy Inc, Chaser Nonstop News Network, Jamie's Kitchen Australia, and the legendary Enough Rope with Andrew Denton. Crackerjack was sold to Fremantle Media in 2003, with Mark taking the reins as CEO and his brother Carl, COO. They quickly built a slate of 19 different productions, including the very new Australian Idol, Australia's Got Talent, Newstopia, The Farmer Wants a Wife, The Apprentice, Project Runway, Choir of Hard Knocks, The Biggest Loser, and MasterChef. In 2010, Mark and Carl left Fremantle to head up the local affiliate of The Shine Group, which was launched by Elizabeth Murdoch. What followed was an absolute blitzkrieg of TV content with an extraordinary slate of TV franchises and super brands, including Beauty and the Geek, The Bachelor, Shark Tank and The Voice. During this same period, they launched highly successful dramas, including In Excess, Never Tear Us Apart, Catching Malat, and Peter Allen, Not the Boy Next Door. Within just three years, Shine was the number one production company in the Southern Hemisphere. Then another merger took place. Mark and Carl agreed to oversee what was a new company, Endemol Shine Australia. What followed is another unbelievable output of content with hits including Lambs of God, Mystify, Australian Survivor, Offspring, The Beautiful Lie, Wake in Fright, Gogglebox, Australian Ninja Warrior, Married at First Sight, Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds, Blue Murder Killer Cop. I mean, can you believe this list? Anyway, in 2017, Mark was awarded an Order of Australia, recognising him for his significant service to the broadcast industry. He was recently ranked number one in the Australian Financial Review's cultural list. The brothers' fantasy recently departed Shine after almost 11 years, and whilst the world waits to see what these industry trailblazers might do next, Mark is overseeing the highly anticipated scripted series, Last King of the Cross, and he also runs a small independent record label in keeping with his passionate and long-standing relationship with the music business. This guy has a relentlessly creative mind, always ticking over with new ideas and possibilities. Combine that with his fierce work ethic and an ability to articulate his vision, well, 
it's kind of epic. He's the guy who's had a huge hand in the film and television you've been consuming over the last 30 years. He's a very private family man, and I feel this is a rare opportunity to see what makes a man like him tick. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Mark Fennessy. Good morning. Good morning, Lee. Thanks for coming along, mate. Good to be here. Hey, I thought I'd tell you why I'm doing the podcast. I don't know if I ever told you I had that conversation. Essentially, I feel like creating of any kind is the greatest joy in life. Like my wife makes the bed every day and it's like an aesthetic creation. So whether you're making beds, whether you're landscape gardening or whether you're making TV shows, it's all creation. And with 2020 being as rough as it was, I just wanted to inspire people to keep creating. Particularly as a parent, I kind of wanted to encourage my daughter to keep dreaming, keep creating. Don't give up because once you lose your dreams, well, you know, why bother living? Well, yeah, we're only here a short time, aren't we? I mean, how many, how many times each week, month do you hear about somebody else that's gone that you thought would live forever? Um, and you're reminded constantly, you know, that it's only so brief. So, you know, believe in the passions and your dreams and, and, and as you say, create. I think it's great. I think it's very noble, mate. I really do. I think it's a great message to send out to, particularly in these incredibly challenging times. Yeah, cool. Thanks, mate. Well, you've been lucky enough and I guess worked hard enough to create a, a career and a, and a life of creating, mostly television, Um but I did notice in kind of reading up on you, there weren't many interviews on you. You clearly take the low profile and try and sort of work behind the scenes. But I did notice that music is probably your greatest passion from what I could see. Would that be correct? Yeah. Well, look, firstly, Carl and I are pretty much backroom guys and um, we're not huge self-promoters, I must admit. But, uh, but I think my entire career, I've often said this, has kind of been at crossroads of television and music probably two of my greatest passions as well so you know make your passion a profession as they say um music's been a, a huge huge influence and passion on my particular life and my brother is a huge music fan as well so you know i play guitar not particularly well but you know it's a huge joy to be able to pick it up and play a song you know my days at mtv and beyond that and my relationship with the music industry grew significantly beyond the years that I was at MTV and it's still there today so it's it's been a big passion big influence and yeah I've done a lot of work in the in the music business through and indirectly with it as well um it's it's been you know a, a constant kind of friend and companion I suppose throughout my career that's awesome. Did you ever want to be a rock star when you're a kid I think everybody does don't they I mean you know <laughs> most people most guys, anyway, will pick up guitar to pick up chicks, largely, you know. Um, I think that's <laughs> be lying if that wasn't the case. I think more so um, being an accomplished musician was, for me, something I'd, I would have loved to have achieved. I never, when I was younger, kind of had the patience to stick at anything long enough to actually master it. You know, and that goes back to playing the recorder at school. Um, so it took a while to master the guitar because I would get distracted, you know, and toss it aside uh, when I couldn't just, you know, play Stairway to Heaven straight away. But eventually I learned persistence and sort of stuck at it to the point where I can play quite accomplished stuff now. 
um, mainly on acoustic these days. I've got a couple of beautiful electric guitars, but they tend to gather dust a fair bit. That's just a sign of age. But, I mean, of course, I did play in bands at different times, you know, not for long stretches because there was always so much going on in my professional life. I was always kind of running from here to there and going from one thing to the next. You know, downtime was pretty scarce. So it was hard to actually really focus on something like that. It was a pure passion, which wasn't really generating any kind of income as opposed to building a career, I suppose, and paying the bills. Yeah, gotcha. Is there an album that has influenced you? Oh, gosh, not really. Look, there were many that stand out over the years. And, you know, again, a lot more these days than also one in the past. I still listen to so much music even today. I mean, people like Ed Sheeran are phenomenal artists, but probably, you know, Harvest by Neil Young brings back a lot of memories for me. You know, I can put that on and it takes me to other times or I've heard different songs over the years. That was one of the classics, I think. You know, there's been so many. I've got actually pretty diverse appreciation of music. I can sit there and listen to classical music and just be completely consumed by the moment and really enjoy it. There's a lot of urban stuff I really like. You know, there's a lot of hip-hop stuff I actually really like. That's cool. Hey, tell me, I think you are in your 20s when you were running MTV. Yep. And then I think not long after, you were directing the ARIA Awards, and I think you did that for many years. So how was that transition of going from kind of fan of these people to suddenly directing these shows and having to kind of wrangle these artists into an unpredictable live event when, you know, there's a lot on the line? Um, Look, I think that just becomes you. I think during my time at MTV, certainly it was probably the best time, and I'm very fortunate for that when you look back on it you don't appreciate when you're in the moment just how incredibly unique that experience is and that time is uh mtv was just hot as a pistol you know i mean we're talking mid to late 80s through until the early 90s was my time running mtv and then i had a relationship with mtv international beyond that and so going from that to say doing an aria awards i did five actually um there's been 60, so ultimately I've not really done that many. I did the first four that went on TV. The sixth ARIA Awards was the first one that ever went to air on TV in 92. I did that, did the next three, then came back and did the 30th ARIAs a few years ago. So I think in terms of dealing with artists, corralling them, managing them, dealing with you know the artist management was also a real art form, still is in many respects. But... You know, back in those kind of periods where you had these major iconic acts, it was dominated by the likes of Cold Chisel and, you know, The Angels and Midnight Oil, In Excess, Divinals, The Models, Crowded House. So you were dealing with this kind of maybe eight or so incredibly dominant managers, and and they were very, very unique guys. Your John Woodruffs, Michael Brownings, Gary Morris... Chris Murphy, Michael Ganinski, there's a whole stack of them. So I think the MTV period where everyone wanted a piece of MTV, everyone wanted to be on MTV, you had record company people, artist management, PR people, publicists, they were constantly coming in and out of the office. So you got to know a lot of people really quickly. The whole nucleus of the music business and those behind the scenes you know, suddenly you knew them all within a really close space of time. So when it came to things like arias, it actually helped a lot because, you know, there was a level of familiarity, there's a level of respect. 
So having difficult conversations at times, it wasn't that hard. You've always got a lot of theatrics and a lot of kind of emotive kind of people who are fairly passionate and driven. A lot of the time, they're only just doing the best that they can by their artists. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of pressuring and there's a lot of grandstanding, you know, that comes from bosses of record companies who are also using different levels of influence to artist management. So you're juggling all those things. I actually didn't find any of that problematic. I quite enjoyed it, to be honest. Right. Um, you do develop really good relationships and levels of mutual respect. Right. You know, once they respect you, it makes it a hell of a lot easier. Right. So you're in a powerful position to basically break acts there. So we hear all the stories about America and, you know, the cash for radio play and airplay and all the rest of it. Did you encounter that here? No. Just a different story here. Yeah, no, all that payola kind of period, which was made very famous in the book Hitmen. I mean, that all existed predominantly in the US and it was quite well known and quite established for a period, Uh, much of the frustration of the labels. Eventually, it... The business got it, regulated itself and got rid of all of that. I never saw any of that, right. any of that here. There was always a lot of schmoozing. Yeah. There's all harbour cruises and all sorts of stuff. I mean, labels would fly us to different places, you know, a lot of the times overseas to interview artists. So you'd do a special in and around. I remember we went to Tokyo for five days for Janet Jackson's 21st birthday. Right. It was a big thing that MTV International Put on so we did a two-part feature an interview with her backstage at the tokyo dome and i think they were two like eight or ten minute kind of feature segments on mtv and then there were excerpts that ran on the today show so it was very good cross promotion for labels so there was a lot of that yeah um we, we were always going to record company launches you know album launches artist launches showcase performances there was literally something on every single night of the week right um, but in terms of, you know, the kind of payola and stuff, no, I never, never right. saw any of that. Gotcha. So you've got your own record company now called Helium and you, you're having some success with, particularly with a band called Darlinghurst. They, they look like they're on their way. Yeah, look, thanks, Lee. That's, that's been a, a huge labour of love. It's just fledgling, tiny little <clears throat> label at the moment. only has really, you know, a handful of artists. Um, but, you know, it's been a... Again, it's a, that's a labour of love. It's a passion project. Um, and yes, Darlinghurst um, really only had them for about, about a, a year, four, four singles in one year, two number ones, and the, the other two were top five. So this is a modern country, contemporary country. I think that they will probably cross over at some point. Sort of like a lady antebellum, you know, two guys, two girls, all great singers. So you've got wonderful harmonies and a fabulous songwriter and a guy called Jason Resch that just writes just big hooks, great songs, you know. Yeah. Watching the evolution of that grow, just people starting to know them. With country music, you're only talking about a small amount of streams. Yeah. But they're on their way. It's not about where they are kind of now. It's where they'll be in a couple of years from now, even five years. Um, and you have to go on the journey with these guys. It's the pain of investing with having a label is, is something new. I tell you what, that's hard. It's a tough business, isn't it? The hardest thing to leave for any independent record label, and anyone who's walked the walk in this world knows it only too well, is that if you don't have a back catalogue of music that's generating an income, if you don't have a significant publishing business of some kind, you've got no way of offsetting. You know, Like a million streams equates to pretty much about $4,500. So... Four and a half thousand dollars doesn't go very far. You can spend ten grand here, five grand there. I mean, it all adds up really, really quickly. 
So to recoup that on the basis of pure streams alone for a small independent label is, well, it's a loss leader kind of equation. You need to, you know, <laughs> there's a certain point where why they need to be the Beatles for you to actually make your money back. But, you know, we all live to dream. It's, it, that's what it's about. I love having that relationship with artists. I love having that kind of slightly more professional relationship or business relationship with music. Something I've always wanted to do, whether it's something that I'm always going to do, I don't know. Um, but, you know, an artist like Darlinghurst and watching them kind of evolve, and it's really a case of not if but when with them, I can see that. That's been, you know, that's been really quite heartening and a joy. Nice one. It must have been, I guess, a shock to the system because you've come from, I don't know, over two decades of running the biggest production companies in the country and the, the most prolific and the most successful. I know you hate hearing compliments like that, but most successful TV producer of the last couple of decades and working with, you know, 20 shows, many of them budgets upwards of 20 million. So you've got a budget to play with. So to go from a couple of decades of that to now running your own record company, <laughs> it must be like, oh my God. It's actually fantastic. You know, I'm very, very grateful and humble for the success that we had as, you know, independent producers. I mean, let's face it, we're a format factory for a long time. So yes, there's original IP and there's great ideas and you've got to execute stuff really, really well. And success is about a lot of it's incredible hard work. So, you know, you make your own luck in many ways. But we were often recreating formats of shows that have been already been very successful overseas. So, you know, we have to keep it real in the sense that we weren't sort of splitting the atom. Executing those and, and doing them extremely well, whether that's The Voice or MasterChef or Survivor, um, is, you know, that's a real art form to do it exceptionally well. And I'm very, very proud of that. I don't think Carl and myself ever set out to kind of build empires or anything. We just wanted to be self-funded producers. We wanted to be sufficient to be largely secure in being able to stand on our own two feet. As the success sort of came over the years, a lot of it was just a byproduct of incredibly hard work and also being able to draw wonderfully talented people and create a really unique culture around the companies that we ran but you know nothing lasts forever and um we're taking both taking a break now but i'm still involved in certainly one scripted series that we were permitted to take with us as part of our exit and so i'm not retiring and i'm not going to stop um but it's good to have variety so it's it's great to step back for it for a bit yeah mate that's cool Hey, um, with MasterChef, for instance, just I'd love to get an insight mm -hmm. into how that came about because I know you, you're humble about it, but I think you, you know, were instrumental in creating that phenomenon. I can't even say the word phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> that it was a, a very small show on the BBC that wasn't going anywhere. You saw it and saw the potential in sort of creating a sort of massive stripped reality show and, and so you bought that property and then, you know, I think it became one of the most successful non-scripted formats across the planet, didn't it? Yeah, look, it had been around for a while. We didn't create it. I always thought it had wonderful bones. It had a great structure to it. And it's very core. And so when we were eventually able to license it, it actually had been around already at that point for, you know, at least five or six years, I would think. It had gone from BBC Two to BBC One, and I'd noticed it 
quite some time earlier, um, just really because I thought it had a really nice structure to it and um, managed to pick up the rights to it and present it as an option for filling the original Big Brother slot when it was on 10. So you're talking about a three-month period of programming there. They'd put a tender out to the market to all independents to present ideas to fill the Big Brother slot, which called for probably something that had to occupy four or five nights a week for almost three months. Now, not many shows can do that, can hold an audience for that kind of period. So MasterChef was, you know, a real left of field idea at that stage. Um, we just felt it had a lovely point of difference. And I suppose it was the first time that we supersized something. You know, we've super, so we'd supersized kind of the biggest loser. We then moved it to MasterChef and we've done it with other things since that particular time. You know, you know we supersized Lego Masters from what that was on Channel 4. So MasterChef probably was a touchstone moment. There's no doubt about it. You know, it was yep. one of those unique moments in time. You know, if only I'd been able to kind of put the formula into a bottle, I'd have six or eight MasterChefs, you know. <laughs> Isn't it always the way? So it was a very significant moment and a huge risk that the 10 Network took uh, in backing us. It was turned down three times. Uh, it was laughed at when it was presented at their upfronts as the show they were going with. This is what they were going with to replace Big Brother. Is that right? Yeah, the industry, literally, the trade media, the industry kind of thought, what? Like a cooking show in prime time? You know, you must be kidding. Um, and that wasn't surprising, that reaction. It was a real swing for the fences. The 10 Network, David Mott in particular, great friend uh, who now runs ITV Productions. He really put himself out there, but also at the time, I think it was, uh, might've been Grant Blackley that was running the network. It wasn't easy to convince them and there were a lot of layers to peel back and a lot of stages to go through, but a lot of credit to some highly talented people on our side that helped kind of create the additional layers. So when you take something that's really a weekly show or even a, a daily, but it's a pretty much kind of closed-ended program, you know, start, middle, and end. That's it, see you next week. Yep. And you move that into four to five nights a week, then you've just got to put lots of extra layers in between the key points of the format. And that was the art form, something like MasterChef, was to not change the real essence of the actual format that made it successful, but was just to expand it and stay true to it and to add the layers into it. So at the end of each episode, there's a climax that brings the audience back the next day. To do that is a real art form. And I have to acknowledge that there was a number of people that were involved in that process, you know, highly talented people that, that Carl and I have to credit for helping to do that. Of course, we were the stewards. We oversaw it all. We, we nurtured it. And, you know, we're very proud of that fact. So thank you, Will graciously accept you know the compliments there because it's been one of those evergreen type formats it's evolved it's grown it's it's had a few ups and downs but it's 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 sustainable yeah. you know and the network have, have really nurtured it really well i often liken it to like your favorite old pair of jeans you know the, you put them on you love wearing them they always fit you and you put them away again and you pull them out again the next year yeah. it's like you're looking forward to it coming back it does run 14 weeks, so it's a long time on the air. So you need to have that sustained break. That's been a real highlight for sure. Yeah, love it, mate. Love it. Look, the amount of content you're producing, not just for a show like that, but the various other shows you've got on at the same time, 
your weeks must have been just off the chart hectic. Say you're producing, you know, four or five nights of MasterChef and you've got a bunch of other shows. What would your week look like? How much of a finished ep would you watch or would you just watch, you know, the hook at, at the commercial break? Well, for me personally, you know, as you, as you sort of grow and as you add more shows to the slate, as tended to happen with us, you needed very talented senior execs, whether they were showrunners, executives, you know, someone that oversees all your unscripted stuff, someone that oversees your scripted stuff. So it becomes kind of really managing highly creative and talented people at that particular point. So in my younger days and the earlier stages of companies like Cracker Jack, definitely beforehand, but all through Cracker Jack and then probably a bit through Fremantle, I was in the edit suites a lot, like literally lived in them, slept in them, you know, so we got cheaper rates, all that kind of stuff, you know, which everybody does in the early days. I mean, in the last 10 years or so, I wouldn't sit in edit suites. I wouldn't necessarily go to screenings. I had had people to do that, really highly talented people that were very much an important part of our success. And they managed that process a lot of the time. I like to think in some respects, myself and my brother, but probably me more so in a way, was, was a kind of a firewall between the network and the productions themselves. So there's always you know that constant communication with the broadcaster but then Carl would probably take a greater role on a day-to-day basis of being that firewall whereas I would then kind of had a shoe in both sides because I've always got one eye on what we're selling next what we're developing what new formats are coming down the pipe we'd have a big big catalog of stuff through our own the companies that we were associated with whether it's Shine, Fremantle etc but then we would have relationships with at least four others independent producers that didn't have local offices in Australia. So you had another four pipelines of smaller companies. So we would have an enormous amount of stuff, you know, in terms of the pipelines that we had to choose from, the things that we had to pitch. A lot of them had to be adapted for our market and our culture. So they needed materials, they needed sizzle reels, they needed decks and creative treatments. They needed pitching, presenting. So that was a part that I think I've probably refined and worked on probably the greatest part of my contribution to, to our success over the years. And that was the lovely thing between Carl and I, the way it worked, you know, polar opposites with complementary skill sets. So managing multiple projects and content and volume on one end and then growing on the other, something that's trying to keep you forward, that was probably... That formula, that secret source that we had together was quite potent over kind of a 20-year period whereby we would, you know, we'd go from, gosh, how do we do two of these at once to all of a sudden having 14 at once. Not all at the same time, but some are shooting, some are in post, some are pitching, some are casting. So they're all in different stages and some are small shows like, you know, old people's home before year olds. And and then you've got your juggernauts, you know, your ninja warriors and survivors and master chefs and big brothers and... You know, they're the really big tentpole franchises that, you know, there's high expectations. They come with a lot of pressure in terms of delivering success. Yeah. Thanks for the insight, mate. One of the interviews I did find and read about you, there was a great quote from David Gingell who described you and Carl as a lethal combination of sales and production, like both of you, you know, sharing the roles. But I thought it was a good description. And he also added that having you guys on board kind of took the risk out of a project. 
Well, it was very kind of Ginge, you know, he's a great man and we, and we had great respect and love for David. As we've always managed to have great relationships with the heads of the networks and the very senior people, I think a lot of it was just mutual respect and also understanding their worlds as well. I think for Carl and I, yeah, I think definitely often refer to it, describe it as a happy accident, you know, in the sense that there's five or six years between us. We are quite different. I'm, I often say that I focus on growth, Carl focuses on management, but that's to deny Carl the fact that he's got a really good creative instinct and streak himself. But we, we never actually, from the very early days where there was only a couple of us in, in the office as such, and it was really, we were doing everything ourselves, we never sat down and said, well, I'll do this and you do that. We just gravitated to what we were both kind of good at, and that complemented each other. And again, the fact that we're so different probably really makes it work. There's huge respect between, uh, between each of us. I think we couldn't have achieved what we did without the other. Um, and, you know, I think I probably tested Carl a lot along the ways. There were very, very few times ever that there were raised voices, you know. There was just great you know, mutual respect and just huge amounts of hard work. I mean, we're incredibly grateful and very humble. Again, you know, we're supersizing a lot of existing IP someone else has created. But, you know, there's an art form to doing that really well. But I think the fact that we're able to sort of manage so much volume at once... Right and then still continue to grow, still add another one, add another one. You don't get the chance to step back and go, gosh, how did we do all that? Because no. there's no downtime. You very actually ever rarely clock off. Someone's always texting you, calling you, emailing you. There's always a problem to solve. There's always you know, a drama of, of some kind. You know, a lot of the times, things you can't control yourself, things you can create yourself, but it's just time. It just kind of rips by. Yeah. You're older than Carl and you were already successfully in the business, directing, shooting, um, I think a couple of networks in Melbourne first up. So being the older brother and do you have the last say when it comes to big calls? No, I think it's always been, I like to think it's always been fairly mutual. I mean, Carl, I think, has always been incredibly gracious and respectful to me as kind of the rainmaker, I suppose, you know, the hunter and gatherer. You're correct. I started when I was 17 at HSV in Melbourne. I worked for seven, worked for nine, then to MTV. I'd had 11 or so years, 12 years at the networks before I started as an independent producer, which is literally on my own out of a one-bedroom apartment, you know, off the end of a, one of those old mobile phone bricks. And um, that was kind of it. You know, we never actually had huge industry contacts. We never had connections. We never had inheritances or, you know, leg ups from people. You know, we never had doors opened. You know, it was a long, hard row. It took kind of four or five years pitching before we eventually got our very, very first show on the air. I mean, it's that old thing. No one's going to give you a shot in packaging the thing if you've got no track record. They would happily hire me as a producer, but they weren't interested in us packaging the show. It was the ABC where we cracked through eventually in the end. But uh, Carl came into it at a certain point. He'd had a bit of experience. Uh, he'd worked at, uh, briefly at 7 and 9 in Melbourne as well, so he wasn't completely unknown to it. But when he came in to join me at Crackerjack, I'd sort of been going for about a year and a half. And at that particular point, you know, I was directing music videos, I was producing commercials. You know, I was chasing stuff most of the time as opposed to actually doing it. When you're at that point, you're just trying to keep the wolf from the door, pay the bills, you're trying to keep your head above water. So when he sort of 
approached me about coming to work with me, I was barely able to put bread on the table myself. Fortunately, I, at a point in my life, I didn't have mortgage kids or anything like that. So I was living on dirt anyway. So, you know, I was unsure as to whether I could support him as well. But I said, look, if this is what you want to do and you want to have a crack and you want to come to Sydney, then come on up. And uh, and so that's sort of how we started. But it was pretty hard going in the early days. I mean, there were lots of times we couldn't afford to pay ourselves and things like that. So we'd certainly done our time in the miners before it ever sort of started to take off. Makes sense, mate. Hey, you and I took a project to the ABC. I, I came to you with an original idea, a music-related show. You liked the idea. Still do. Thanks, mate. We can keep dreaming. And we should. <laughs> um, and the reason I bring this up is because I think it's a good insight into how difficult it is to get shows commissioned, even when you mark fantasy. So... I came to you with that idea, you liked it and went, yeah, you know, you should do a pilot and gave me a couple of pointers, I sort of went and shot the pilot, came back and you're like, wow, that's fantastic. And at that point, you know, we had to do some legals and we did a co-production deal and, you know, I did engage a lawyer and he's like, what, you got Mark Fennessy and Endemol Shine on board? He's like, oh, it's going to happen. <laughs> he's like you you've scored the best so i was like oh great this is fantastic even though i know at the same time you're saying hey i've got to tell you some things have been knocked back for five years five times ten times before they get commissioned and many don't so anyway we went and pitched it to a few places and i got to see you in action and very smooth mate <laughs> Thank you. If I'm no good at that point, I was never any good. Not good enough to get it up. Not, not good to get it up. But, yeah, just tell me, I, f I find that really interesting that that's how competitive it, it is. That's how tough it is at the networks. Obviously, we've got a small number of networks in Australia and we're at that, we're at that interesting time of flux where the old model of um, free-to-air networks, you know, they don't have the deep pockets that they used to have and there's the streamers and, you know, there's a lot going on and, and people, uh, I guess, tend to uh, want to wait and see where it's going in a way. But can you just give us some insights into what you've learnt about pitching shows and, and what the environment is like now and where do you think it's going and, and advice for people who have a bright idea? Yeah, look, that one idea of yours, Lee, which I think is still an outstanding idea and it just couldn't find its moment and that's the case with a lot of them. Most producers, most creatives out there have all got something and have all got a great idea that missed its moment or a great idea that should have been greenlit. I've still got a stack of them, you know. So for every one of the shows that we did get up, there were hundreds that never did. And some of them deserved to and were not greenlit for different reasons. Even network execs would say that we don't always get everything right either. You know, the metrics and the, the rationale behind their decisions is very, very well thought through, you know. So... I think for me, a lot of successful placement of, of programming was based upon you know, Intel, good communication, trying to understand what the market wants to buy. So very rarely would I ever go into a, um, a broadcaster, a buyer, a streamer without having had some kind of background conversation, some sort of communication beforehand. You know, just go in blindly with a blank sheet of paper and go, hey, we think this is a great idea, you guys should make it without having any conversation or discussion with them beforehand, you know, like 99 times out of 100, you're, you're, you're not going to get that away. So there is a process and it takes time to understand and learn that 
in terms of the right level of engagement. So the idea is actually given proper consideration. And you really probably need to go in with established players in some way, shape or form in order to get them to lean forward. The, The landscapes are rapidly changing the more change in the last two years than I've seen in 20. Uh, And it actually is an incredibly exciting period. It's quite probably sort of concerning and worrying in some respects for the traditional kind of network broadcast model, which which is changing quite quickly. But they're all now moving and shifting their businesses quite cleverly in terms of, you know, fishing where the fish are and acknowledging how content is absorbed and consumed um, by the market these days. You know, the growth of the BVOD platforms, the growth of SVOD, obviously, more and more of the streamers will come into the marketplace, which is, you know, already fundamentally changing it from a producer's perspective, from a creative's perspective. You know, often a good idea has got nothing to do with getting it on the air. It's about understanding the challenges of the particular network that you're aiming it at, Rather than just saying, I've got this idea, I'm going to go pitch it to everybody, I would almost never do that myself, unless I had something that the whole world suddenly wanted that happened to be sitting in my lap. And that happened on a few occasions, but not very often. So you really got to actually be very targeted and talk to the right people about whether or not I'm singing to an empty hall here or whether there's genuinely an opportunity for this particular idea. Then you need certain levels of materials, you need a certain level of engagement, you need to get in right in front of the right person because they will all look for ways to not commit, essentially. Yeah. You know, I could give you a list of different ways and means and whys that, you know, that they don't want to say yes, but they don't want to say no either. Um, you know, it can be quite funny, actually, uh, and I've had lots of funny conversations with wonderful colleagues and friends at the networks over many years where we can both laugh at each other, you know. Like, they'll always give you something to go away and do, which removes the pressure off them in the moment of having to commit. Okay, I'd like a series budget and a pilot budget. I need more of this. Or can you do some casting for me? Or can you maybe give me a slightly different version of that deck? You know, they're all little jobs, little tasks. And then you wake up a year later after you've (laughs) done all this to go, you know what? They're actually never going to buy this. This is their way of sort of saying, look, uh, I really want to commit, but um, no, because you don't realise how many other things they're being pitched elsewhere. And they're looking for something in a particular genre because they're, they're, they know what they're up against elsewhere. So we need a point of difference. We need to appeal to a different kind of demographic, whatever. And so they'll have already narrowed it down to kind of the area that they're looking in. And then they'll look to consider the best you know, six ideas for that particular slot and your idea just might not be as good as the others or it might not have a certain piece of talent attached or it might not have a particular ingredient that they really like. I mean, our market here is getting better in terms of them taking risks, but it's still fairly risk-averse market. I mean, the streamers are really breaking that down a lot because it's all effectively original stuff. The networks are still very format-driven. It's still about what's taking off in the UK and the US a lot of the time. So, you know, I think for producers and for creatives and people who are, you know, scratching away in their bedroom with a particular idea and banging stuff out on their computer, don't give up, you know, but also be realistic about it. You can save yourself an awful lot of time by 
bouncing it off the right kind of people early or trying to get to someone of a particular level of influence to give you a sense of whether or not it's kind of something that is going to find its place or not. Most ideas that were ever pitched to me, and we had people just coming at you from all directions, you know, uh, a lot of the time the networks would send them to us as a way of sort of getting rid of people in a sense. <laughs> really, yeah. I mean, I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but yeah. you just can't get anything done. Okay. And you're not making money from considering other people's ideas either. So you're, you've got stuff to do and you've got deadlines and you've got stuff to push out the door yourself. Yeah. So managing all that's really quite challenging. But I've always said to people, look, there's usually one really, really good idea in, in any single thing that's being presented to me. Often there's more than one thing, but usually there's one thing. So very rarely have I seen a completely ridiculous, absurd idea. There has been those along the way, but not many... Okay, it's just not what the market's looking for. I can't sell that idea often, I'll have to say. You know, it's not about what I know, it's about what I can sell. And the market is just not looking for that right now. Okay, so I'll save you a lot of time. It might be looking for it in a year. It might have been looking for it a year ago, but it doesn't want it today. It doesn't need it today. So it's kind of like save yourself a lot of time and energy and get the right intel. Yeah. Find out from the right people. Have I got something here or am I kind of wasting my time? Good advice, mate. Thank you. We've talked quite a lot about or touched on some of your successes. Were there any moments of not necessarily failures, but any, you know, the one that got away or, or moments where you... Oh, look, the, the one that got away certainly for me was um, who do you think you are uh, on SBS? I had that and sat on it because what you would do, you'd, you'd option these ideas. So you'd pay them a certain amount to give you an exclusive period of time to pitch it and sell it. I saw that really early, really liked it, and for whatever reason, I dithered, which was very rare for me, to be honest, but I, I sat on it. This is going back to the Crackerjack day, so it's a long time ago. And I don't know what it was. Maybe at the time, I just didn't have the money to be able to pay the option fee, I can't remember. But I passed on it, and you know, I just deep down knew that there's something there. And of course, it's, it took off, and I, it's, I think it's still an SPS today. <laughs> so that was one that got away, you know. Um, for me, personal highlights, yeah. I mean, it's always gratifying to get the big shows away and make them work. You know, it took a lot of time to get Ninja Warrior up. Um, Master Chef, we've talked about, obviously. You know, the voice was um, was one of the highlights, definitely. Even though we didn't create it, but you know, Julie Ward and myself worked really closely together, and and together with Nine, and that was phenomenal success. You know, but then there were the other things for me. Um, we did a show years ago called The Choir of Hard Knocks for the ABC. Jason Stevens' idea, who worked for us at the time, um, and I loved that particular show. The Chaser shows that, that I worked on with Andrew Denton, um, CNN and N, the two seasons of that that I did. A uh, little show called um, The Gift, which was about organ donor transplants. It was actually a real social issue quite close to my heart. We did two seasons of that for nine. Um, I always loved um, Project Runway. Yeah, um, yeah, that was good. The, the sort of fashion designers, I loved that format, always loved it. And Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds, only recent one that we did, you know. So it's not always the big juggernauts. The big juggernauts are great from a business perspective, you know, yeah. because you know, everyone feeds off the hog. So that's always good for business. It gives you security, keeps the wolf from the door. Yeah. And when you're hitting numbers, 
when you're the outpost of a multinational and you're hitting numbers that, that feeds into, into everyone's bonuses, to deliver those kinds of projects is important. And it's very satisfying and rewarding to deliver success on that sort of scale. But it's often the smaller ones that have stood out for me that I've really loved over the years. Even Backburner that we did in the first four years, which I literally exec produced myself, four years on the ABC was really the thing that got us up and going. Elements of Comedy Inc., you know, I thought we did some great stuff um, with that sketch comedy series years ago for nine. Really loved it, you know. So... You know, I've actually always had a deep love and passion for the business, for content. You know, it's it's never felt like a job. So I've always got some sort of, you know, road to hoe, some sort of trail to blaze, some other rainbow to chase. My mind's constantly going. Yeah. I'm not a great sleeper, so there's always kind of stuff. Always percolating. On my, on my mind, yeah. <laughs> a lot of it junk sometimes, but, you know, so I've always had a great energy and passion for it and... Yeah, I'm grateful for that. It's hard. A lot of people never find the things that really light up their soul, you know. Yeah, that's wonderful, mate. Hey, clearly you're a creative guy and and a hard worker. You've had to be a good businessman as well. Obviously, you've been a team with your brother for a large part of your career. But how have you dealt with the kind of the multinationals and obviously your partners with Elizabeth Murdoch when she formed Shine and then it became Shine Endemol Shine in Australia? I mean, you've obviously spent a lot of time in that world, contracts, multinationals, sales, manoeuvring. A lot of lawyers, mate. A lot of lawyers, exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, how have you dealt with that and a a huge amount of pressure? Yeah, you learn learn as you go. And and I have to pay a lot of respect there to my brother, but I think we both learnt as we went. We made mistakes certainly along the way, particularly in the early days, but we learnt from them quickly and never made the same ones again, you know. So... To get inside the business of the business, it isn't the sexy side of it, but it's very important because, you know, there are a lot of traps for young players and we learn important things along the way. Yeah, you end up spending, the bigger that you become, the more growth, more success that you have, suddenly spending more time with internal chief finance officers, your lawyers, you know, your production managers in regards to budgets. There's a lot of arm wrestling with networks over budgets, over terms in contracts and so that becomes a lot of it. And you, you learn as you go because ultimately it's not an exact science, the business. And networks will often hand you a contract and say, well, they're our standard terms and conditions. Well, their standard terms and conditions change from a day-to-day basis. <laughs> they basically are your standard terms and conditions today. <laughs> um, so there's always going to be moments uh, along the way, you know, but we've stood our ground. And I like to think we've always conducted our business incredibly honourably. We're quite proud of how we've we managed that. We always made sure we had the right advice and we went to lengths to understand the intricacies of any particular given deal or set of metrics or numbers. That is a real art form, I can tell you, that can bring you undone very easily. And, you know, again, the benefit and the value of hard work and taking the time to read things and understand things and sit through long meetings with the right people internally is a part of it. It's not so much the most fun part of it, but it's a crucial part of it. Hey, um, there must have been offers from, you know, the US and Europe and elsewhere to be running their empires. You opted to stay in Australia? Collectively and individually. Carl went and ran Shine in the US 
when they had to restructure everything and uh, and sort of pretty much set up Shine Americas from the ground up. He did that for about two years. I turned down various offers over the years. Simon Cowell uh, approached me to go and run his company Psycho in the US. I turned that one down. There was a number I, I turned down over the years. I got an offer from Sony Music to move to New York at one stage to kind of run their film and sort of TV division and stuff. So some really great offers over the years that I got an offer just after Carl had come into Cracker Jack. So Cracker Jack was probably only two years, two and a half years old. And I got flown to Miami by MTV, you know, because I'd almost kind of left the MTV family at this stage. Although as an independent producer with Cracker Jack, we were representing a lot of their stuff and still producing a lot of stuff for them at that time. So that relationship was still there. And I, I went across to Miami and they offered me the job of um, like head of production and programming for MTV Latino. Now, this was at a particular point in my life where I wasn't married or anything like that. And I went over there for five days and got to know the team there. And every night we went somewhere different along South Beach. I thought, you know what, this is me. And that's the <laughs> one job even to this day I have a sense of regret for turning down because, you know, Carl was then in Sydney and I'd started down this road as an independent producer. And I searched deep inside myself and realized that, you know, look, even if I take that job, I'm gonna ultimately come back to being an independent producer at some point down the road. If I'd taken that job, I probably would have been on the MTV carousel for the next 20 years. So that means you end up in the UK or you end up in New York and you just move around. And Probably for your health, it was better you didn't take it. Had you spent a year in Miami. <laughs> five days in Miami with those guys. Yeah. You know, there just probably wasn't quite the right thing at the right time in different circumstances. You know, we've stayed here. We're proud Australians. So I don't think I've got any regrets in that sense. I don't think Carl does either. That's cool, mate. Hey, um, I guess also you are on the board of the Sydney Roosters Rugby League Club, so you had certain responsibilities there you, you needed to well, stay in right. Australia Well, that's can't leave for. the country because of that. That's right. So how did that come about, being a Melbourne guy, <laughs> you know, coming from, you know, AFL land, coming to Sydney and, and you know, becoming yeah. involved with rugby league? Well, I've been a massive sports fan. I, you know, Wide World of Sports, the original one on nine, I was a part of that team. I'd gone from news at seven to seven sport. So I'd been two or three years at seven sport before I went across to nine. Sports and sports production's been probably the third string to the bow. So, you know, TV, music, sports, really, that's kind of it. And um, when I moved from Melbourne to Sydney with Wide World of Sports, I really didn't know anything about rugby league. I flattered with some guys um, in the eastern suburbs who were all Roosters supporters. And back then, the Roosters were pretty crap you know, <laughs> and had been for a while. And um, But I didn't take much notice of it, having been a Richmond supporter and really being an AFL guy. But it was state of origin, I think, started to really pique my interest in the game. And from there, I just began to go to the games with these guys a few times, just on the few times I had a, an opportunity. And, you know, I love live sport no matter what it is. I'll watch just about anything. So uh, I just developed a real love for, for rugby league. I mean, I like union as well, but rugby league, there was just something there. I, I loved the kind of skill of it, the, the physical nature of it, the brutality of it. As I learnt more about the game, I became, with these other guys around me, I became more interested and started following the Roosters. And um, uh, ultimately, I used to sit out in the stands with my two boys when they, they were little kids then. They were, you know, five and six and crawling all over me, you know, until you gave them chips, you couldn't get them to sit still. So uh, <laughs> I, 
I then met, I think it was, might have been David Gingell or someone else through through TV that had connections there. And so I got invited to join the Chairman's Club, um, which was terrific. And I then got to meet a lot of the sort of like the real senior guys at the club. Really good people. And I just really liked the environment and the people and the atmosphere. And then when David Gingell stepped down off the board to go and run Granada in the US, this is before he came back to nine the second time. Um, he stepped down off the board and there was an opportunity and, and, you know, that they invited me on. So, and I've been on ever since. So that was, you know, 14 years ago now. So I've still got a huge connection to, to Richmond, but the Roosters, I've just, it's just been a hobby and a passion outside of work and my family. It's really the only hobby I've got time for, to be honest. Wonderful people on the board. And that's been just, you know, it's been a real highlight of my life. Winning a premiership as a director of a club is an amazing experience and I've been fortunate enough to have won three now and hopefully maybe a couple more before I'm done, Lee. But that's been a wonderful highlight. It's been a real passion that I've got. My boys uh, are Mad Rooster supporters as well. And, you know, it's a great family club and something that, you know, that, I'm, that, that I've loved. I've really loved it. Mate, well, the, the, I mean, the club and the team has been going gangbusters over the last decade and it, it clearly it used to have a culture problem back in the day, but clearly it's a got a good culture. And, I think um, that's a subjective perception, <laughs> Lee. Uh-oh. Well, I'm a rugby league fan as well. I, I grew up at Manly, so... I'm I think a, every club's kind of got a culture problem at some, <laughs> at some point, you know, like if one player has an indiscretion, the whole club's got a culture problem. That's right. That, that's just fodder for the tabloids, mate, really. Yeah. You know, a lot of the time. No, you're absolutely right. That's classic. Hey, we haven't talked much about your scripted work. Yep. Before we run out of time, I mean, there's been some uh, yeah. fabulous scripted shows. Obviously, the In Excess show, which ticked a few, you know, passions for you. Mm. Um, any insights on on that? And, yeah. Look, and- I think scripted for me has evolved over a period of time. You know, I think you grow into a period whereby it becomes more kind of fine dining than fast food, which is kind of the unscripted type stuff, the churn and burn, rack and pack and stack them kind of kind of stuff. I mean, so I look at the scripted stuff I've been involved in over the last five years, and whether that's mystify, in excess to in excess projects, catching Malat, blue murder killer cop. Waking Fright, Lambs of God, Royal Flying Doctors, which I kind of, I sold and had in production before I actually departed. So that one will come out mid-year this year on seven. To the Last King of the Cross series that I'm doing now for a, a streamer to be announced shortly. That has been a project I've been working on for three years. The famous Ibrahim story based upon John's book. I, I read the book. It's a cracking story. Yeah. So I'm loving that at the moment. So for me... Scripted being drama or features for the streamers, um, modern doco film, they're, they're the sort of things I'm, I would like to do more at in the next stage, you know. It's not, I'm not saying I won't do unscripted again or the reality stuff again if it's the right idea, but I don't want to have to feed the machine. And I think at the moment, for me, the way that the streaming world is evolving and how scripted's evolving... That's got my real focus and attention at the moment. So, you know, John's project has been three years really in the making for me and the development. It's taken me a lot longer to get it to where it is now than I thought it would. But I'm absolutely loving it. We shoot in August. You'll see it at the end of this calendar year, most likely. Fantastic. Um, And it's going to be exceptional. It's going to be premium stuff. It's the biggest 
scripted thing I've done so far, and it's the beginning of the next chapter. Wow, that's exciting. Mate, and um, Emma, your wife, your lovely wife, she must be happy to have a, a bit more of your time or maybe not. I don't know. That, that's a question for Emma. Uh, it's taken us both a little bit of adjustment. I think, I think so, yeah, definitely. I mean, she's Emma's amazing. She's, I've been very, very lucky and, you know, um, I've been very fortunate how much latitude that she's given me over the years and sacrificed a lot of her own career aspirations in many respects. I can't pay enough acknowledgement and respect to her and gratitude to her she's so used to seeing me come in one door and go out the other for so many years and so have my two boys so it's all a bit of an adjustment for all of us for them to see me around a bit more it's 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 really good you know it's 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 very timely i'm in a great place good on you mate just about to wrap it up I've noticed, well, just a few days ago, um, on a sad note, Chris Murphy passed away. Who yeah, very sad. Legendary manager of In Excess. You must have worked closely with him. Any, uh, you know, classic Chris Murphy story to recount that oh, captures look, the there's... unique character that he was? <laughs> very unique character, but also an extraordinary character. Um, didn't realise Chris was unwell until literally a week before he passed and he, he went down the hill pretty quick I think from all accounts. Um, very very sad this is a guy that's probably lived six lifetimes in one larger than life. Had a lot to do with Chris during the halcyon period of, within excess in the late 80s early 90s and then a lot in the last five or six years during both uh, Never Tear Us Apart you know Chris had you know he was an, an exec producer on that with me he we worked very closely on that. And then the Mystified project I did with Richard Lowenstein, the Hutchins film. Um, you know, he was fearsome, ferocious, um, extraordinarily driven, you know, a great master strategist, really up there with Robert Stigwood and, and people of that kind of calibre. Roger Davies is Roger another Davies one. Roger Davies comes to mind, yeah. Um, and he always fought hard for his artists and, and you know, um, was driven by huge passion and energy. And um, everyone's probably got a, a Chris Murphy story, you know, um, and I've got plenty of them too. But, you know, deep down he was an emotional guy. He had a big heart. He was passionate, um, very sad. He was an icon in many respects and a great Australian. Well, yeah, just think of it. It's like he's contributed to the soundtrack of our lives in such a massive way. And I guess likewise, mate, thanks for several decades of entertainment and your contribution to um, our Aussie culture. Some of it I haven't watched and I haven't loved, but a lot of it I have. And um, thank thank you all the same. Thanks for having me. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. Well, that's it for another episode of The Blank Canvas. I trust you've enjoyed this insight into a man who's had a huge impact on popular culture over the last 30 years. Feel free to rate and write a review if you like the episode. Next week's ep brings another stellar entrepreneur. But until then, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Millevich production.